This is Splice. You're listening to a recorded session from Splice Beta 2022 in Chiang Mai. We've edited this, but only slightly. Hey, this is Alan from Splice. This session features Kirsten Han, the founder of We the Citizens, and Nitin Koka, the founder of Asia Undercovered, on how to make freelancing work for you. Uh, I have also a freelancing experience in five years, and mostly in China. And uh, when I go back to Mongolia, I noticed that we don't have freelancing culture there. When I pitch in my story ideas, they just stole my ideas. The freelancer was selling the ideas of stories, and then after that we earn small amount of money, right? And uh, then I thought, uh, how do you do? You have like the face this kind of experience when you're working as a freelancer, and then people are understanding freelancing is kind of work. You need to work for free. And uh, how do you increase your freelancing uh, per piece costs? And uh, how do you find, like, you just like niche media, right? And who willing to pay for like traditional media and uh, make freelancing as sustainable? And also, meanwhile, increasing your per story prices. Yeah, I can't speak much about this the stealing ideas, because it hasn't happened to me, but I've heard freelancers talk about that. I think, I hope that if we can build a freelance community, even a global one, and those outlets get called out for some of these things more often, they'll be less likely to do it. I think they can take advantage of us because they're dealing with us one-to-one, um, and that's unfortunate. So I hope, I hope there's some way to stop, stop that. In terms of finding niche media, uh, be a good consumer of media. I'm trying to think, like, I think I, for Shareable, I think I just saw they were posted somewhere on like a message board saying they're looking for writers. And I had a discussion, the editor and me had a phone call and then we built a relationship and we did, I did so many stories over them over three, four years. I have like a long list of like, and I'm happy to share it, a long list of places I look for, looked for and look for like story ideas. There's some really good news, email newsletters that gather pitches that people post on Twitter, which I think are really useful. I think Twitter, I find Twitter to be a really useful role because you can just, find particular editors or see pitch calls that editors put out, and then sometimes you can respond to them or at least get their contact info and send them an idea via Twitter. So yeah, that, that, that's that'd be my first thoughts. Yeah, I think sharing information really helps. So you know, sometimes there are efforts to like share the rate that you got when you got commissioned, because you know, then that's one way to like at least say, this is the rate that I got. So make sure they're not lowballing you if you work for the same place. And at least that gives you an idea of like how much you can bargain and ask for. And I think it does make a difference if editors know that if they behave badly, that the freelancers will all be talking about it and they might not be able to find freelancers to work for them in the future. So I think, because it's very hard to have like a formal like freelancers union or whatever when we're all so scattered, but at least that sort of whisper network, I think it makes a difference. So definitely just sharing the information, I think, is a, is a big one. Thank you. I'm not fully sure if my question will be relevant in this case. I was just wondering, um, how would you navigate more political aspect of, because I'm from Mongolia as well, and our passport is not as strong as some other Southeast Asian countries. Do we require a lot of, to get visas to visit ground work on different countries? So like you mentioned, uh, the admin work, that takes a lot of work and such. So how do you manage, do you have any tips that, some things that are like fully out of your control 
and then just manage it without going insane? Do you want to have like some tips that you have picked up along the way and not having a platform to back you up or like a publisher to back you up whilst doing that? Yeah, I think definitely um, I don't travel for my freelancing so much. I'm very much Singapore-based, so I don't have to worry about the travel aspect very much. But uh, as a freelancer, I'm very aware of like... Um, you know, that, that I am alone and that there is no resources, there is no legal department or human resources department. Like, if I get sick or if I get sued or whatever, it's still a one-person operation, right? So I think that, that is very, that's a big deal because I was on a panel about press freedom with all these, like, editors of, like, wire agencies and big organizations, and they were like, yes, yes, we all have a plan on how to extract our journalists when things get bad. And I was like, nobody is extracting me from anywhere, right? The moment it gets bad, it's like, none of, you are not our employee. And then, like, how do I, I cannot extract myself. So, so I think that's where, for me, the clarity is very important. Like, if I do this, what is the risk? And am I willingly doing it? So that I'm not, like, inadvertently getting into trouble and then being surprised by it. So for me, there's a lot of that sort of thing that I have to do and then just having to, and then having that clarity helps because then if you already know how much risk you're willing to take, then it's much easier to hold the line, I think, when that comes because, so in June I had that experience where I had to, I realized that like it was a good thing that I thought about it before because I got called in for a police investigation and then while I was in the interrogation, it was escalating beyond what I had anticipated it would go to because they said, um, we need to confiscate your phone. And I was like, okay, I expected that. So I had taken steps to secure the phone and then they gave the phone and they said, now we want you to unlock the phone. And I had also expected that, so I unlocked the phone. And then he went through my phone in front of me and said, where are all your social media apps? why is your phone so clean? And then I was just like, because I deleted it because you're the police. And then he said, now I want all your social media passwords and I want you to commit to not log into your social media for the duration of my investigation. And I said, how long is that? And he goes, I can't tell you this sort of information. And then I said, no, you're not getting it. And then he said, well, this is the law. It's six months prison, $5,000 fine. And then I was just like, no can do. And then that's like, like, I was very relieved that I had thought about this before. Like, I hadn't expected it to happen then and there, but I had at one point in time gone, if that situation came up, what is my red line that I will refuse? Because I was willing to give the phone, I was willing to unlock the phone, but like, I was like, this is the red line, right? So I was very glad that I had thought about it already, because I think if I hadn't, I would probably have panicked and maybe like made a decision that I didn't want to. I was lucky in a way in that I used a password manager and then I deleted the password manager. So actually, even if I had crumbled, I wanted to give him the password. I don't remember what it is. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so like that's, that's such a situation that I think that's very important because there's actually, there are a lot of things that you cannot fully eliminate, you can only mitigate, and I think as freelancers, we have extra burden to think about these things, because like an agency like Reuters or AFP will have their safety teams whose jobs are to think about this, right? But as a freelancer, you have to think about it yourself. Yeah, I'll just add, like, one of the reasons I left Indonesia was because towards the end of my time, there are three other foreign journalists I knew had to, like, leave the country, or were, like, one of them was, like, arrested for a part-time, for a short period of time, and then forced to leave. 
So I could see the space was shrinking. And I was taking a lot of risks. And I realized at some point I'm going to get caught because I, it's hard to get a journalist visa as a freelancer in a lot of countries. I think on purpose, they don't want them journalists to come as freelancers. It's even hard for media outlets to register properly in a lot of countries in Southeast Asia. So it's kind of an intention by the governments in these places to make it hard for us to work. And it's hard to, yeah, I agree, plan as best you can. There's a lot of, there's some good organizations like Committee to Protect Journalists or Freedom of the Press Foundation that have like call numbers or can provide support if you were in a situation potentially. But I'm not sure how reliable they are in actual cases of emergency. So I think it's best to be as overly prepared as possible. Yeah, so I'm in my first year of freelancing and I'm kind of experiencing the classic, either a lot of work or not very much work. And I'd be very curious just to hear a little bit about um, how you manage your time and kind of going through those different periods, you know, how you try to make the most of it depending on which period you're in. And I realize you're both much more established and maybe this is looking back to earlier in your careers, but um, we'd love to hear a little bit about that. Definitely as a freelancer, I feel like I pendulum between there's so much work, I'm so tired, and there's no work, I'm gonna starve to death. And like, there is no middle ground to this. I'm either complaining about work or panicking that there's no work. And I, and I do find that actually, it, and it's not unique to journalism freelancing because I have a friend who's like a tuition homeschool teacher and she goes through exactly the same thing. She's like, I have too many students or I have no students, I'm gonna be homeless. And like, there's no middle ground. We are constantly panicking. I think the problem is, it's a very common freelancer tendency to then work all the time. Because if there's no office hours and you have no colleagues who are going home, then you are just working all the time. And especially when it's so blurred, the boundaries, right? Because there's no point in me setting up a work email, like a company email, when I'm a one-person thing. So then the email is the same email that my friends email me on. The Twitter account is the same Twitter account that I also follow cat photos on. So like it's all melded into one. So if I'm scrolling Twitter, if I'm reading my emails, there's no distinction between whether it's social email or work email that I just work all the time. And so I think for me, definitely over the past two years, I kind of hit a point where I was like, this is so obviously unsustainable. I've been in this state for six years and it clearly doesn't, like, it, it might work in terms of, like, work productivity, but, like, in terms of mental health and just being tired, it doesn't work. Like, this year I definitely hit the peak of burnout that I didn't realize I could hit. I got to a point where I could not write a sentence because my brain was so fried, I could not actually string the sentence together. And I was just like, obviously, you need to start working for a bit and that is fine and you are not going to starve to death. And I think that's where the community kind of really kicked in. That's where I really started to appreciate that there is a community of like newsletter subscribers or people who are willing to support you because there were, there were periods in this year where I just did not do any paid work and then the newsletter was my sole income. And it wasn't high, but it, but it was at least something, right? So it just, it just made sure that like for that, you know, one month, my income wasn't zero and that I could still kind of scrape by. And then just to let people know. So I also make it a practice to let people know that that is the case. So, you know, I will email the subscribers and say, look, this, this month I didn't do any paid work. So your $50 a year is the reason my lights are on at home now. And, and I, I make sure that they know because I think that that also feeds into 
them feeling like they have contributed and that they are part of this community, right? So um, I think it is a big challenge and, and to just recognize that like you don't have to be working all the time and to be a bit more strict about making sure that there are scheduled uh, free t scheduled rest periods, like free time if you just want to watch Netflix, like one day a week, it's absolutely fine to just do nothing but watch Netflix. Like, I think we, I struggle a lot with, um, if I'm not working, I feel a lot of guilt about not working. And so to actually say, no, no, that's absolutely fine. You've already worked six days a week. Today, you just watch Netflix. This is your job today. You just watch Netflix today and that's fine. And I think I have to learn to be more strict with myself about that. Otherwise, I just work forever you actually find that your work is not actually better and you're not necessarily doing more because you'll write 500 words today and then the next day you realize that you were so sleep deprived that 500 words actually don't make sense, then you have to delete it, then what's the point? You might as well have just had a nap that day, right? So, so I just like to be strict about not working, I think was the big thing. When I started freelancing, I was using this tool called Toggle to just keep track of how much time I spent on each, how much time I spent pitching, how much time I spent on Article A, how much time I spent on Article B, and then every month or two, or more like every three or four months, I would go back and like analyze, okay, how much time did I spend browsing Twitter? How much time did I spend doing this? And I would try to like think about how I could be a little more efficient with my time. I would also put in like vacation days and I would keep track of my vacation days. And I found that to be helpful just to like for one thing, like figure out how much money I was making from each article and realize which publications were maybe asking for too many edits and making the process really tough. That wasn't worth spending time with that publication. Maybe it was better to spend, and sometimes it was counterintuitive. Sometimes it'd be like this publication paid $500, but they wanted like five rounds of edits. This one paid $100, but they wanted no rounds of edits and they were pretty easy to work with. You actually, I would actually make more money from the $100 one than the $500 one. And I wouldn't have realized that unless I you know, had this kind of tool to track those types of things. I also, switched maybe a couple years ago to start doing like monthly planning where I would set an income goal every month. I would like keep track, I would like make a list of like five main tasks and several minor tasks and like optional tasks. And if I exceeded the income goal, I would like carry it over to the next month. So it meant like the next month I didn't have to make as much money. And that gave me a little bit of space to like, okay, that month I can take a little time off or I can relax a little bit more. I hit my goal last month, it's okay. I don't have to work as hard this month. And just like for me actually thinking in months, I was thinking in weeks before, but thinking in months was like so much more effective for me as an, as an organizational tour versus thinking in weeks as I was doing before that. Um, I think you should, everyone should test and try. I don't think there's any right way to be organized. Everyone has a different system, but I think you have to find what works for you and what tools and what helps you like better efficient, be efficient and keep track of time and be able to maximize your effort and also balance. Because I think finding balance is one of the biggest challenges for freelancers. Yeah, I think whatever works for you is what works. Like, these are just tips, but if they don't work for you, then they don't. Like, I think in days, <laughs> like, if I know what I'm doing tomorrow, that's fine. Then, then day after is tomorrow's problem. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask about your, uh, how do you keep your pipeline full? What's your marketing strategy for both of you? Did you post stories you've just published or do you talk about your process? How do you keep yourself up there so that you get gigs and your gig pipeline filled up? I don't know, it just happens. No, um, I think one thing, I, I had a little role working as a commissioning editor last year 
And I was so surprised how I was seeing a journalist that wrote a really good article, and then I couldn't find how to contact them. Like, and I was just like, wait, I want to commission you, but I have no email, there's no Twitter, it's just your name. How am I supposed to commission you? So I think being easy to contact, having a good website that shows, showcases yourself really well, having Twitter, having a clear way from Twitter to get to a play to contact you, in a way that's, I, I try to keep it safe. I don't want my email everywhere. So I have like, I use simple login to have like disposable emails and uh, other methods, but make it easy for the people to contact you. I think one milestone when I was a freelancer is I started having fallback publications. Like if I didn't have any commissions, I could go back to fallback publications that paid less, but I knew they would take my stories. Um, and that always meant like, okay, if I, I, I'm not gonna ever not have any work. I can get paid something by working for them. And that was helpful. I kind of felt bad sometimes doing that because they were like publications that I really liked working for. But at some point, you have to think about myself first. Yeah, I think, you know, when I started freelancing, I used to worry a lot of like, oh my God, I don't know what... I don't know what I'm going to be doing in three months' time, so obviously I'm going to be homeless by then. And then, like, then realizing that, that there is, like, as long as you keep kind of going and, and doing what you can, there is a way that, that work just emerges somehow down the line, right? Like, like, the reason I can't envision what work I would be doing in three months is that maybe the, the media publications and the editors themselves have not envisioned what they want to be commissioning in three months. So there is a way I found over the years that, that work does just emerge somehow, and like not in a way that you might expect, but you know, it does, you know, you, there's never gonna be, it's not just dead. I also have like some fallback sort of publications, like places that I know will take like a, an op-ed and maybe they only pay like a, a small amount of money, but at least it's something and there'll be very few rounds of edits and, and that's like a quick thing that I can do if I have some time. So I don't necessarily always write based on like rate and what I can earn from it, right? So I do sometimes also post reporting that I perhaps, you know, could have pitched somewhere else, but just post it on Twitter as a thread or something because um, that then like feeds to the visibility, it feeds to the reputation. So you, at least as long as you know what you're getting out of it, I think it's, it's worth putting stuff out there. And sometimes the Twitter thread is like a bit more truncated and then you get an editor who's like, can you turn this thread into 1,000 words and like elaborate more? You, it's, it's really very unexpected. I once got commissioned, so actually even before I started full-time freelancing when I was still doing when I was still doing my master's in the UK, I once got commissioned for a story because I saw a US publication like just post a, like a wire agency photo. So they would just pick a wire agency photo and be like photo of the day on Twitter. And then they posted a photo of like migrant workers at a construction site in Singapore. And I just replied to that tweet and I was like, those workers are underpaid and they, passports are confiscated and it's a serious labor issue. And then they actually DM'd me and was like, 1,200 words. <laughs> so like, it's really unexpected sometimes where you get work from. Hi, I, I just wondered what, how do you keep yourself motivated? I mean, we all need to eat. So, <laughs> so I mean, money is obviously a big motivation factor for lots of people. So when there isn't work, what stops you from just saying like, you know, screw it, let me just go back to a media outlet and a stable uh, income and keep it going and keep it sustainable. So uh, how do you keep yourself motivated and keeping it sustainable for yourselves uh, for the long term, basically? It's a super good question. Sometimes I'm surprised that I haven't failed. I think it's because I never planned to be a journalist, so it's still kind of amazing that I'm a journalist. So maybe I'm still in awe 
at what I'm doing. And because I'm still in awe, it's still like, really, people want to like talk to me? Or I can go to a conference for free? I don't know. So I haven't had like, I've had dips. I have never had like a really bad downturn as a freelancer, thankfully. There have been times I got frustrated because of particular stories. I'm just trying to think out loud. Well, I, I still feel like I'm making a difference. Even though the space has closed so much in the world for freedom of press and journalism, I still feel like my stories are making a difference because I, I personally feel like if I didn't report the, most of the stories I did, no one would. Because um, as, as a freelancer, I'm looking for stuff other people aren't reporting. I'm not competing. I'm just trying to find different stories, different angles. So if I wasn't doing it, no one would. And I guess that's a motivation to keep going for me. For me, it's also partly because freelancing suits the other stuff that I do. So because I'm an activist as well, like there aren't that many full-time jobs I could do that would allow me to do both. And you know, freelancing gives me that sort of freedom. But I think it actually does help as a freelancer to kind of have that thought at the back of my head that if I wanted to go full-time and like get a full-time job and do something different, I could anytime. Like tomorrow I can be like, I'm going to apply, send job applications. And I could be freelancing as I'm sending job applications, right? So just even knowing that that is an option, I think helps because then it's like, yeah, you don't have to be doing this. If you're having a down period, it's absolutely fine. So there have been periods in these like eight years where I freelance, where I take on a part-time job, you know, and then I'm doing that and freelance on the site to supplement the income. And there have been times I've done that and then times I've been fully freelancing. That helps because then that kind of staggers the rhythm. And occasionally I have done temp work where it's much more like full-time, right? So they, because someone is like, on vacation or on maternity leave or something. So they bring me in for temp work and for like that two, that two weeks, I have full-time hours and I go to a company. Discovering that I get very bored after day three helps me be a freelancer. Because like the first two days, it's like, it's great, you know, like what do you mean I can just leave at 6 p.m. and then after that, none of it is my problem and I don't care. But like by day three, I'm kind of like, I wish I was freelancing. So I think that that helps. Um, and yeah, and just seeing the sort of different work out there, I always feel very glad that I do this. I think the, the freedom that we have as freelancers, because of so much of the time we are pitching, um, we have a lot more freedom to kind of pick the stories and the things that we're interested in, more than if you work full-time and like might get assigned to things that you don't necessarily want. So I feel like I'm very lucky in that I have a lot of complaints about the work that I do, but I've never had to question if it was meaningful work, which is something that a lot of my friends who do full-time work say that they struggle with. So I think that, that keeps me going as well. What's one thing you would have loved to have and didn't have, or would, would have loved to someone build and is not there around? So just looking for ideas, so how to better serve freelancers as a former freelancer myself. So what's one thing you would wish there's out there and it's not there yet? <laughs> for me, like it gets back to one of the first questions, like uh, a way for freelancers in Asia or in the region, Southeast Asia, to like collaborate and connect and share things about editors, rates, tools, pitches. There isn't that, there isn't that community, um, at least a big enough community yet. So community, because there in the US, I've, there's been a couple of emerging efforts to build that type of community, but there's nothing really in Asia yet. And I would really love to just be able to just like 
share when I had a bad experience with an editor and see if other people also had it in a place that's also safe where I don't have to fear that the editor is going to find out. Yeah, I think, I think that's really important. Uh, and sometimes the community could be very small. Like I think it would have helped when I first started freelancing to have known another freelancer and just be able to talk and share that sort of experience and like talk each other down from the ledge when they're panicking about having too much or too little work. I think to have someone bounce that off and be like, you know, you're, you're actually doing fine would have been really helpful because a lot of the times when I was doing it, when I first started, I didn't know any other freelancers really. It, it was hard to tell, like, am I doing this right or am I like just going about it the completely wrong way? Like, the first, when I, was, when I first first started freelancing and I was kind of doing it part-time because I was studying at the same time, um, I would unwittingly lowball so many people because I just didn't know what the rates were. So I was charging too little, which meant that I was getting exploited, but I was also like unknowingly undercutting other people and I didn't know that, I didn't realize I was doing that. And like, it got to the point where like I was being a fixer for, for a news company that had flown into Singapore. And I had just on plain ignorance, not knowing what the rates were, lowballed them so much that the driver of the van who was driving the gear around was paid more than me. And the driver, like, the driver was the one who was like, girl, uh, I saw your invoice and you need to sort that shit out. <laughs> he was like, I'm the driver, I just sleep in the car park when I'm waiting for you, right? And you're working like the 16 hour day and I earn more than you. And so, um, you know, it would have helped if there were other freelancers around at the time to have just been like, you know, I, that, that whole period of my freelancing was something that should, that a new freelancer could, could just leapfrog over if there were other freelancers sharing information. Hi, I just wanted to say that, first of all, I think that freelancing requires a lot of courage and discipline, so I'm completely in awe of everyone who can do it. But one thing, as freelancers in Asia, I think as a full-timer in Asia, my biggest problems with, if I may say, legacy media or global media is to make people understand the nuances of Asia and the, and the fact that Asia is not a monolith. So as a freelancer, what are the challenges that you face when you're like pitching to legacy media or global media run from the G7 countries? Yeah, I think explaining context is hard. There's also a big tendency that I, I found among some editors to have this sort of like like oppression Olympics sort of comparison because the you know like their international section is small so there's only so many countries they can commission from I didn't have this experience myself but a friend who was also freelancing had where they pitched a story about domestic workers in Singapore and how they were being exploited and then the editor's response was in Qatar is much worse or like, you know, he's like, you know, one quarter, it's estimated that one quarter of domestic workers in Singapore do not get a day off and are locked up in their homes. And the editor was like, come back when it's three quarters, right? And like, this sort of assumptions that get made and, you know, they're like, why should I commission the story in Singapore if, you know, there's a coup in Myanmar and blah, 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 blah. That, like Singapore on comparison is not as bad. And on, on a sort of... On a purely like logical level, I understand it. Like if you only have three slots to commission, like it makes sense to me that you would go for the coup and, and all these big, bigger things and Singapore doesn't seem as big, but I think 
we all suffer for it when the thinking is like that, right? When there's coverage for whatever your country is and then everyone else in the world has to compete to see who's the most oppressed to get any attention. It's very hard. I, I don't, I've never come up with like the answer to that. It, the only way I've been able to work around it is through like my newsletter. So I do it in my new, own newsletter or find smaller media that might not have that same sort of lens. Yeah, I just, I think that's one reason I mentioned niche media. They sometimes are interested in longer stories where you can actually explain the nuance more than the mainstream. I also think sometimes it's not good to like think of outlets, but think of editors, because I have found once in a while, like a really good editor at a publication that's, you know, one out of the 20 there that's gonna like interested in a nuanced international story. And I pitched that editor. Um, but when the editor leaves, then the publication no longer is interested in stories, which has happened quite a few, quite often. So find those like people within a publication, within an outlet, or good editors that are different. There are some of them out there. They're hard to find. And maybe if we had a community, we could share the names of these editors more and f figure out who they are. But yeah, overall, I haven't found any other good strategies. There's just... Asia is like full of stereotypes. Like Indonesia, they only want stories about disasters. In Japan, they just want stories about things that are weird. And the, if it's not in those like two niches, it's like it's so hard to get anyone to care. Then um, it should change, but I don't know how to change it. I think we're out of time. So thank you, everyone. Um, You've been listening to a session recording from Splice Beta 2022. Let us know what you think. You'll find us on spicemedia.com. This is a Splice podcast produced by Norman Keller at Podchaser. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Google, International Fund for Public Interest Media, International Media Support, Conrad Adenauer Stiftung, Luminate, Media Development Investment Fund, Meta, and Telemedia. This is Splice.